From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's September 3rd, Labor Day 2012. I'm Lisa Mullins. Today, the new UN envoy to Syria is pessimistic about ending the violence there. People are already saying, people are dying. What are you doing to help? But he's still ready to try. Also today, Israel evacuates families from an illegal settlement outpost and gives them brand new homes. The message of this government is that crime does pay, that if you build illegally on other people's land, you might get a house for free. And later, a festival for a dwindling minority, the Redhead. PRI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. And by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece Mystery, Kenneth Branagh stars as brooding Swedish cop Inspector Kurt Wallander. He has a new relationship, a new sense of possibility, and three chilling new cases with devastating effects. Don't miss a new season of Wallander, Sunday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Today in Syria, a government minister welcomed the new United Nations envoy to the country, and he vowed that Syrians would give the UN's Lakhdar Brahimi, quote, maximum assistance the way we did Kofi Annan, his predecessor. Annan quit last month because his peace proposal was largely ignored by all sides. Brahimi says the task ahead of him is nearly impossible. In fact, in an interview with the BBC, he put the burden of the task in personal terms. I'm scared of the weight of the responsibility. People are already saying, people are dying. What are you doing to help? And indeed, we are not doing much. That in itself is a terrible weight. There is everything to be scared of. That is the new UN envoy to Syria, Lakhdar Brahimi. The major activity in Syria has been concentrated, for the most part, in the cities of Homs and Aleppo. But the capital, Damascus, is seeing its fair share of fighting as well. Author and journalist Janine Diagiovanni is there in Damascus now. You were there also just about one month ago. I wonder if you can tell us what you see has changed in the past month. There has been a huge difference in the attitude and the people's response to war, also to the shelling. Um, There's much, much more shelling. The people are frightened. It's no longer descending into an evolving war. It is at war. And has that level of fear that is heightened now the fact that that the war seems to be so close to home, has that changed the attitudes of people with whom you've spoken about the Syrian regime and people's ability to tough things out? People during wartime, no matter where they are, um, basically have one concern, which is for the well-being of their family and their own situation, their own life, you know, how they're going to live, how they're going to get food, water, send their kids to school, Politics are important, but I think right now the concern for most people is getting through the day. How are people making the decision about whether or not they should up and leave, especially if they've lived there all their lives? Have you spoken with residents of Damascus who are making plans to exit? This is the first question I ask people, always. 
any war zone I've ever worked in. You know, why don't you leave? And I think the answer is always the same. You don't leave because you do not want to leave your home. And, you know, Syrians and Middle Eastern families in general have deep roots. You know, they're very family-oriented. So you don't just pick up and leave and leave your elderly mother behind and your brothers and your aunts and your uncles. They're not as rootless as we are, um, Anglo-Saxon lives, where you would pack a backpack and your documents and you go. So it's it's a choice of, do I stay and, and maybe I'm going to weather out the war, or do I go and take a chance of the complete unknown, uprooting my family, becoming a refugee? And the loss of identity and the loss of your national identity is, for many people, enormous. Thank you very much, Janine DiGiovanni, who's a journalist and author of the book Ghosts by Daylight, Love, War, and Redemption. We spoke to her from Damascus, Syria. Please take care of yourself. Thank you. Thank you. Among those staying put in Damascus is a group of artists who are fighting the Assad regime in a unique way. The artists post videos online. We've got some at theworld.org. They're not the gruesome images we've become used to, though. Bruce Wallace has this story about a YouTube series that uses puppets to comment on events in Syria. The first episode of Top Goon opens on a lone, snoring finger puppet. It stirs and rises abruptly, escaping a nightmare. The puppet, named Bishu, is wearing red and white striped pajamas and a matching sleeping cap. As soon as you see the face, it's clear. This is a caricature of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. Soon he's being soothed by military aid. The aid assures him that his regime isn't in danger. Then he sings a cooing Bishu back to sleep. Go to sleep, go to sleep. I will kill all the people of Syria, the aide sings. This is the director of the Top Goon series. He goes by the pseudonym Jamil. He says he and the other members of the collective Masasat Mete were really nervous when they put this episode on YouTube last November. But he says the fear was mixed with joy and anticipation. It's the first time in our lives as artists, as young men and women, that we can criticize the regime. We wouldn't dare to even make a little gesture at them before. Now we're able to criticize them big time. And this is not subtle criticism. Another episode in Top Goon's first season has Bishu victorious in a game show called Who Wants to Kill a Million? Others show him dressed as Dracula, sinking his fangs into a protester's neck, and consulting with his father, Hafez's ghost. Donatella Della Rata is a Ph.D. fellow at the University of Copenhagen who studies Syrian popular television and knows the members of Masasat Mete, most of whom are based in Syria. She says that mocking the Assads was unheard of before the Syrian uprising began. There might be criticism in Syrian drama vis-à-vis the government, uh, even high ranks, but this criticism will never touch the leader, ever. So, yes, I was shocked when I saw that, uh, for example, they were touching Bashar al-Assad himself, and uh, even more surprisingly, they were touching Hafez al-Assad, his father, which is a kind of sacred uh, monster in Syria. Delarata has seen an outpouring of user-generated creative culture blossom in the Syrian uprising, from video art and theater to music and slogans and repurposing of regime propaganda. 
So in a way, the uprising plus the use of the Internet has democratized this way of expressing uh, yourself and has given some, a certain amount of power to the, to the citizen um, to express his view. And she says this sort of creative resistance is still happening, even as things in Syria have grown more deadly in recent months. The increasingly dire situation in the country is clearly reflected in Top Goon's second season, which launched at the end of July. The tone is darker and the violence more in the foreground. This is particularly true in an episode from a few weeks ago called The Monster. Bishu tortures a prisoner, all while taunting him, saying that everyone has this kind of brutality in them. Let the monster out, Bishu says. These are finger puppets, and still it's a bit hard to watch. The prisoner snaps and starts to strangle Bishu. Bishu is pleased. The episode closes with a Friedrich Nietzsche quote, Be careful when you fight the monsters, lest you become one. Arwa, Masasat Mete's writer, who asked that his last name not be used, says this is something Syrians have really wrestled with, and the group has taken up the theme. The goal of the group itself is to reflect what people feel. As best we can, we try to express the feelings and questions people are living with, and we try to point out the mistakes and present alternatives. And it's a struggle that Masasat Mete has been through itself. Two of the main actors from last season aren't with the group anymore. They wanted to openly call for violence against the regime. There's some optimism in this season of Top Goon. There are new characters meant to show the growing diversity of the resistance, and they say several of the forthcoming episodes are set in a post-Assad Syria. Donatella Della Rata says there's hope in the broader creative resistance she still sees going on in Syria. Because it proves there is a civil society in Syria. It proves there is an active citizenship that is, uh, despite all the events that are happening in Syria, is still, you know, making its voice heard. Masasat Mete is getting its message out, if slowly. A recent comment on Top Goon's YouTube page reads, We are watching in the U.S. too, and praying for all. For the world, I'm Bruce Wallace. In Israel, attention this weekend turned to a Jewish settlement just outside the Palestinian city of Ramallah. Police evicted some 50 Israeli families from their homes. Opponents of settlements in the West Bank call it a victory for the rule of law. But Israel's government vows to strengthen Jewish communities elsewhere in the West Bank. Matthew Bell reports. The hilltop settlement of Migron is a 20-minute drive from Jerusalem. The community was established about 10 years ago, and it grew to become the largest of the 100 or so settlement outposts scattered across the West Bank. So the legal fight over Migron's status has taken on symbolic meaning. Israel's Supreme Court ruled the settlement was built illegally on private Palestinian land, and it would have to be evacuated. Since 2006, Israel's government promised to evict Migron's residents, Deadlines came and went, but things finally came to a head this weekend. On Sunday morning, Israeli police hand out eviction notices door-to-door. Dozens of Jewish teenagers also show up. The young right-wing activists come to Magron to protest the eviction of Jews from land they consider to be their God-given right. A 17-year-old named Meir tells me the people of Migron need to resist. They should not use violence, he says, but they shouldn't go willingly either. By midday, most families are gone, though a few stay to passively resist their eviction. A married couple and their three children are among the last to leave. They walk out of their home, past a gaggle of news crews present, and have nothing to say. Two of them hold signs that read, The eternal people do not fear the long journey. 
By day's end, police scuffle with a few teenagers and make eight arrests. But as the Israeli government hoped, no scenes of violent clashes between police and settlers. Danny Dayan was on hand to observe. He's chairman of the Yesha Council, a group that represents Israeli settlements in the West Bank. He says no one wanted to see violence. But have no doubt about it. We will return here. We will return without any legal doubt. And from the original Migron, we will have two or even three communities that will be established based on, on Migron. So, you know, maybe it's a step backward, but on the long run, uh, we will prevail in this uh, endeavor. As the last residents of Migron leave, moving trucks arrive. It's part of a deal with the Israeli government. Leave Migron voluntarily and move into a new settlement just a mile down the road, built at the government's expense. Construction workers put the final touches on rows of newly built single-family houses for those evicted from Migron. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu welcomed the peaceful eviction of Migron as a sign of his government's commitment to the rule of law and to expanding settlements. Critics of the deal say it sends the wrong message. Unfortunately, the message of this government is that crime does pay, that if you build illegally on other people's land, you might get a house for free from the government. Chagit Ofran is an activist with Peace Now. The group is opposed to West Bank settlements, and it brought the legal case against Migron. Ofran says the eviction of the outpost is an important victory. We managed to force the most right-wing government to remove a settlement. I think the settlers never dreamed that Migron will be evicted. They were planning to have it like a normal settlement with permanent homes, with hundreds of families, and they failed. Other settlement outposts are facing legal action and possible eviction, but residents of Migron say their fight is not over. They filed a last-minute court petition claiming that they legally purchased land. Some graffiti left behind on Sunday spoke to their determination. We shall return, it said. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. Still to come, unpacking a claim of blasphemy against a 14-year-old girl in Pakistan on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run, at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The founder of the Unification Church, Sun Myung Moon, has died near his home in South Korea. He was 92 years old. Sun Myung Moon's followers are often called Moonies. He was a controversial religious leader who proclaimed that he was the Messiah. He did jail time in at least three countries, and yet he managed to create a multi-billion dollar business empire and gained audience with world leaders. That included rulers in his birthland, North Korea. From Seoul, Jason Struther has more. Reverend Moon is probably best known for presiding over mass marriage ceremonies like this one earlier this year. It involved thousands of brides and grooms, many of whom had never met until this day. They received blessings from Moon and his wife, Hak Jahan, known by their followers as the true parents, earthly embodiments of God. But bringing couples together isn't the only goal of the Unification Church. 
It wants to do the same for divided countries, too, in particular North and South Korea. The role of Korea is a little bit like the role of Israel for Christians. It'll be like the, the fatherland reuniting again. Michael Breen is author of a biography on Moon and a former member of his church. He says after Moon's release from a North Korean jail during the Korean War in 1950, he became a staunch anti-communist, but later wanted to make peace with his old enemy, ruler Kim Il-sung. The two met in 1991. And unlike some other Christian aid groups, Breen says Moon took a different approach to engaging with the North. Rather than come in and try and sort of beat them over the head with the Bible, the Unification Church comes in and does economic activity. Making inroads with North Korea is one of Moon's greatest accomplishments, says Hwang Yoon, a North Korea analyst at the Unification Church-funded Sun Moon University in Seoul. He points to a hotel the church runs in Pyongyang, as well as Pyonghua, or Peace Motors, a jointly operated car manufacturer. He says the start of Pyonghua Motors was one of the first times that the two nations cooperated. It helped improve inter-Korean relations and develop economic ties. Huang says because of the importance of North Korea in Moon's life, he doesn't expect the church's outreach will change now that its leader is gone. Other observers aren't so sure that making peace with the North was really Reverend Moon's top priority. Aidan Foster Carter is an honorary research fellow in modern Korean studies at Leeds University. It was more about them getting their fingers in every pie. I think of it as a power play. I mean, I hope that isn't too cynical. But the Rev Moon was famous for two things, his proselytizing and his businesses. Power play or not, Moon's biographer Michael Breen says, despite being what many consider a cult, the Unification Church has done with North Korea what many governments, including South Korea and the U.S., haven't been able to do. So far, no word if North Korea will send representatives to Moon's funeral on September 15th. For The World, I'm Jason Struther in Seoul. Sun Myung Moon started his Unification Church in South Korea in the 1950s. He eventually claimed millions of followers around the world, including here in the U.S. Eileen Barker is Professor Emeritus of Sociology and Religion at the London School of Economics. She says that despite America's reputation as a country open to different religions, it took a personal visit by Reverend Moon in the early 1970s for his church to gain traction here. He went on a series of rallies in the early 70s, started organizing conferences to which he invited various notables, and lots of people started to join, particularly in California, where there was uh, quite a lot of heavy influence. I wouldn't use the term brainwashing because the majority of people didn't join. What was the appeal here in the United States? A number of things. One was that a lot of the young people who joined who were disproportionately young and disproportionately well-educated, they were idealistic, they wanted to make a world a better place. And another thing that was quite important was the theology. Unificationism has a very well-worked-out theology that provided answers where the kind of theology they'd been brought up in didn't. What kind of answers or answers to what questions? Uh, Well, for example, why is there so much suffering and sin? Moon said that uh, the fall in the Garden of Eden was due to Eve having a sexual relationship with the archangel Lucifer so that the children were born of what they call Lucifer-centered union rather than a God-centered union. 
And this meant that they had what they call fallen nature, a sort of original sin. And the whole of history has been interpreted as trying to restore the situation that it was in the Garden of Eden. Restore it by what? For one thing, having a Messiah, Jesus was meant to get married and set up the God-centered union family, but he was killed before that happened. So we had to go through a whole lot of other things until eventually Moon came along as the new Messiah. And when he married his uh, present wife uh, in 1960, he'd had at least one, possibly two wives before, that it was believed, provided the foundation for the restoration. Professor Barker, you met Reverend Sung Young Moon. Maybe you can tell us what he was like. And and I'm curious as to whether he was as messianic as the founding of the church would have him be. I mean, he said that he was fulfilling the mandate of Jesus because Jesus died before he could uh, reach his goals. What, What was he like? I remember once when I, I went to a meeting and I slipped out just before he was going to come and talk. And when I came back, I got stuck with a whole lot of the unificationists who had come to the door to see him. And their faces were all alight and they were smiling and saying, isn't he wonderful? And those of us who weren't members just saw this man speaking in Korean and gesticulating and looking rather horrified. But there's no doubt that for a lot of people, he had a very strong charismatic authority. They did believe, and still many do believe, that he was someone special, sent by God, in touch with God and with Jesus and able to bring about radical changes in the world. Do you have a a certain kind of admiration for this man? Yes, I do, in a way. Um, I wouldn't say that I liked him. I certainly didn't accept his theology, but I could see the effect that he had on people. Um, And I admired the, the way in which he lived his life to the full. What do you think the future of the church is, uh, the Unification Church, both here in America and uh, and elsewhere? I think the movement will continue. There are some problems and a whole lot of rumors circulating in America about the daughter who's in charge, which uh, suggests that she hasn't been living exactly the kind of life that she's been preaching about the perfect family. And I think as that emerges, there could be quite a few eruptions in America because of this. But exactly what direction they'll take, I don't know. Eileen Barker of the London School of Economics speaking to us about the future of the Unification Church following the death this weekend of its founder, Sung Young Moon. Thank you very much for speaking with us. You're welcome. Our GeoQuiz and Global Hit still on the way on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, a new high school for immigrants only. When you come to this country and you're 15 or 16 and you don't speak English, the chances of graduating are abysmally small. And later, a festival for a shrinking minority. We exist less and less every year. Redheads is slowly getting extinct. 
WERI's The World is made possible in part by the Medtronic Foundation, celebrating 25 new global heroes, runners who didn't let a diagnosis of chronic disease end their run at the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon on October 6th. More at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Police in Pakistan are detaining a Muslim cleric who is suspected of planting evidence to frame a young Christian girl for blasphemy. Last month, the 14-year-old girl named Rimsha was arrested. She was accused by the cleric of carrying burned pages from an Islamic children's textbook. She's been in a high-security prison ever since then, even though she was deemed to be a juvenile with some mental disability. Well, now it turns out that the cleric making the accusation may have done the deed himself. Bina Sarwar is an independent journalist and documentary filmmaker from Pakistan. She now lives in Cambridge. Bina, there was an eyewitness who came forth and has turned this case around with what he said he saw the cleric do. What was that? He says he saw the cleric put in pages of the bur- of the Quran into the bag that Rimsha was carrying to burn them. And he said that the, the cleric, when he told him, why are you adding material to what she's carrying? The cleric told him, this will make our case stronger. And he said that he told him not to do that, but the man didn't listen and said, we want the Christians out of this area. So he wanted the Christians out of this area. Tell us about that. I mean, was this the motivation, if he's proven guilty, for trying to accuse this young girl of something that she did not do? Well, in every single case of blasphemy that has been investigated so far, it's been found that there's some kind of motives other than religious behind it, which has got to do with property, with uh, debt evasion, with uh, trying to, you know, and and prime uh, property in Punjab, and to get the Christians out of that area and take over that area might well have been a motive, because a lot of them have fled that area now. So versus religious intolerance. Or an anti-Christian sentiment? This is not about, I I don't think this is about an anti-Christian sentiment. In Pakistan, the different religions have lived peacefully and coexisted for years, but there are troublemakers who create these kind of disturbances in a very deliberate way. It's instigated, planned, and religious emotions are then played up to create this kind of an atmosphere. This is far from the first case. Uh, In fact, there's another case of a woman older than Rimsha who has been sentenced to death. Tell us about that case. So that's a case of Asya Bibi, who's a young mother. She has three young children, and she's the first woman to be sentenced to death under the blasphemy law. But having said that, I should emphasize that no superior court in Pakistan has upheld the death sentences pronounced by the lower courts or the trial courts in such cases. And Pakistan has never yet, the state has never yet executed anybody for so-called alleged blasphemy. Asia is the first woman who is in prison for that, and her case should go to the Lahore High Court, and under normal procedures, it would get overturned. I think that's a case where it also shows the kind of transition in this society, the tensions of a society that's changing, where she's a a woman from the the lowest socioeconomic strata of society. Maybe 10 years ago, she wouldn't have argued back with the woman who accused her, and the woman who accused her registered the case three or four days after the argument had taken place. And what's the significance of that? The significance of that is that some people went to those women, the women who accused her, and, you know, worked on them and said, you know, you this is your chance to go to heaven. If this woman has blasphemed, she has disrespected our religion, she has disrespected our prophet, and you must take a stand and we will be with you. And And then you go and register this case, and the police are very quick to do that without investigating the real uh, what's behind it. Bina, the blasphemy laws that exist in Pakistan are notoriously severe. In whose interest is it to keep them severe? 
I think it's in the interest of the religious extremists and the religious right wing in Pakistan because that gives them some kind of a place to unify and align people with. And it kind of also falls in line with the ideology that, you know, Pakistan is a quote-unquote Islamic state. For these people, this is their bread and butter. And as democracy takes root in Pakistan and they find that they have no uh, local standby with the population, then they want to hang on to these kind of things. And this law was in- introduced by a dictator who used religion to perpetuate his military dictatorship for 11 years. Mm-hmm. Even though you say there might be political underpinnings to a case like this, it's a class issue as well. This girl being from a poorer class, it's a complex situation, but the tensions as they emerge sound like they're coming from religious differences, even if you say they're not. There are religious differences, but it also has a lot to do with the national discourse in Pakistan, the public discourse, the way that it has been, the way that certain issues have been projected in the media, in the textbooks. I mean, this is a very, very deep and complex issue, as you as you said. It's not as simple as somebody just saying something and being punished for it. It's, there's a lot of different elements at play here. Does the, um, the case of this 14-year-old girl, we don't know what's going to uh, become of her or what's going to happen in the case right now, but, but does this give you an idea of the direction that Pakistan is going in right now? Is it an, an illustration of anything for you? I'm very hopeful that this will be a turning point that uh, because of the All-Pakistan Ulama Council has come out in her support, and they came out in her support before this ev- issue of false evidence came out. They came out in her support before that and said that, you know, she's young and she's, she's got a mental disability. And so if the All-Pakistan Ulama Council, which includes some really hardline clerics, came out in her support, that shows that these people also realizing that they're, you know, they've gone too far now. Thank you very much for coming to the studio. Independent journalist and documentary filmmaker Bina Sarwar, thank you. Thank you. A brief item now. From time to time, we dip into the archives of our partners, the BBC, and this piece of sound caught our ears today. Seventy-three years ago, Hitler's forces were invading Poland. Britain sent Germany an ultimatum. And then on this day in 1939, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain spoke to his people. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. It was the start of six years of darkness across Europe and the world, 73 years ago today. Children across the United States are heading back to class this month. It can be a tough time, especially for those starting high school. Now add to that a new language and a new country, and things can get pretty darned intimidating. That's a situation that many new immigrants and refugees face as they start school in the United States. In California, one public high school tries to offer these students... A softer landing. Reporter Monica Campbell prepared this story. Let's go, let's go, let's go! Up, 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 up! Oakland, California, and the bustle of high school. And since it's week one, there's some orientation. One small class formed a circle, and a student volunteered to say her classmates' names. All of us form Santos, Ure, Hong, 
A diversity of names typical at urban schools until you realize that every student here is from somewhere else. Guatemala and Burma, Nepal, El Salvador and Iraq. Most joining relatives who immigrated to California years ago. Students come here from about 32 countries. But each country has a different educational philosophy, has maybe no educational opportunities. Um, so we have kids that come to us very beautifully educated, or they may have not been in school for the last six years because there's no secondary school in their village in Guatemala. Principal Carmelita Reyes started Oakland International High School in 2007 after visiting a place like it in New York, a public charter school catering only to new immigrants. There are now 300-plus students here, and the graduation rate is above the national average for immigrants. When you come to this country and you're 15 or 16 and you don't speak English, the chances of graduating are abysmally small. There's an effort to have students make up missing credits. And for students new to the U.S. and English, the first year here can start with the basics. So everybody please repeat. Read. Read. Out loud. Out loud. Teacher Lorraine Woodard ensures that students from different countries mix and make friends in English without fear of being laughed at. Where are you from? Uh, I'm from Vietnam. Where are you from? I am from Guatemala. Aurelia Martinez, 15, moved this summer from rural Guatemala after getting the visa to join her mom here. She says she's happy because she's going to learn English. She also wants to become a doctor or a singer. And while the new students ease in, older students push hard to graduate, even if it takes extra classes an extra year. Uh, my full name is Tohlowaini Hapta. All the people there call me by TK. TK is 18 and from Eritrea and joined his parents in California who came here years ago because of war. Staying in Eritrea meant years of obligatory military service. But here you have a full freedom. You have a choices. What do you want to do? In Eritrea, immigration is illegal. TK crossed the border at night into Sudan. He'd stuffed his school transcripts in his bag. I had them, but we're running... You have to escape from the border guards. We just ran out. We throw all my, our stuff. If they catch you, they will put you in the jail. Principal Reyes cobbled together a plan. He had no credits, no papers whatsoever. So how do you treat him? You know, is he a ninth grader? Not really. He clearly had education. And so we decided to put him in 11th grade and see what happens. And he did um, very well. TK's pulled all-nighters, took summer courses. Very hard work. I finished, though. I can graduate in this year. Principal Reyes is proud of achievers. An article about Justice Sonia Sotomayor is taped to her office door. But she's also realistic and knows life in the U.S. means daily hurdles, big and small. You know, we had a kid who brought a machete to school. Well, in America, that's an expellable, you know, offense. And, well, he had a melon for lunch and... In his country, you, if you have a melon for lunch, you bring your machete, you cut it up, you split it. And there are far bigger challenges. Culture shock triggering depression. The pull to work instead of study. The lure of Oakland street gangs. Reyes keeps a stash of white shoelaces and t-shirts in her office if students are wearing gang red or blue clothing. But overall, Reyes says that the best intervention is keeping kids in school around other immigrants like them. And that's the surest path to a diploma and a brighter future in the United States. 
For the world, I'm Monica Campbell in Oakland, California. Now we are seeing red for today's GeoQuiz. Ginger, Carrot Top, Copper Penny. These are just a few of the nicknames given to redheads. Today we're looking for a place that was a sea of scarlet this past weekend. The first weekend in September brings thousands of flame-headed folk to the city in the southern Netherlands. This year, 4,000 gathered in this fortified city. You need to be quick to locate the annual Redhead Days Festival. Our answer's coming up in just a hair. Maybe that was four or five hairs. Anyway, it had to be fast. The place where thousands of redheads gathered this past weekend? Well, it's in the Dutch city of Breda, B-R-E-D-A. And Mike Claussen is the press coordinator for this festival. What shade of red is on your head? I think it's a blonde reddish. A blonde reddish, but you still qualify, Mike. Yes, 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 I'm qualified. Okay. Perfectly, perfectly qualified. <laughs> now, what what is it that you and others do to deserve a festival for people with red hair? We exist less and less every year. Uh-oh. Yeah, that happens. The race, redhead, redheads, uh, is, is slowly yeah, getting extinct. How common is it for someone to be a, a true redhead? Well, here in the Netherlands, there's only 2.4% uh, natural redheads. So it's not, it's not that common here anymore. But if you go to, for instance, I think it's Scotland, they have the highest rating. So they have uh, about 11.5% redheads. What is the festival all about? What happens during it? Well, there are a lot of gatherings of redheads around the world, but somehow we managed to, get the, to set up the biggest one there is in the world. There is a lot of photo shoots going on, and there's a lot of fashion events going on. There's a, there's a fashion show. You can get clothing advice. You can get color advice for uh, mostly the ladies. <laughs> there's some music, and, um, well, of course, there's the thousands of redheads that, that set the atmosphere. There's, there's readings about... Um, red hair or about the pale skin that we we redheads usually have. There's a famous dermatologist who speaks at our festival every year. He tells people detailed information about the skin, human skin, and what we as redheads are missing in our skin, for instance. Actually, this is pretty important as well, not just for cosmetic sake, but also for health sake. Yeah, our skin is very light and uh, we need to protect it extra compared to the, the, the normal folks, how should I call them? The non-redheads. The non-redheads, yes, the poorer among us. Um, <laughs> and uh, what's your own favorite part of the festival, I wonder? Well, every year we try to set up a big photo shoot in the, in the park, which is in Breda, and um, we try to make like the biggest picture we can every year. And this year we uh, made it official because we wanted to set a record. So we got some Guinness Book of World Records people in and... Um, <laughs> We did it. It's uh, 1,255 now. It's not as much as we hoped to, but um, still, it's a new record. And that was, for me, the the best moment there is. Where did you grow up yourself, Mike? Uh, I grew up in a little town called Uden. I started studying in Breda when I was 16, and I still live here. I stayed here. Was there anything kind of noteworthy about your red hair as you were growing up? If you're talking about being teased and and called names, that happens. That did happen. But somehow, um, it disappeared. I think because we're sort of getting extinct, I think it's getting more special and um, uh, fewer and fewer people will be teasing redheads somehow. I don't know how it happens, but it's just not that interesting anymore, <laughs> I think. Uh, really nice to talk to you. Mike Lawson, who's the press coordinator for the Redhead Days Festival, which just happened this weekend in the place that's the answer to our geo quiz, Breda in the Netherlands. Thank you very much, Mike. You're welcome.
Music coming up on PRI. PRI's The World is supported by WGBH, producer of Masterpiece Mystery. Kenneth Branagh stars as brooding Swedish cop Inspector Kurt Wallander. A new season of Wallander, Sunday night at 9, 8 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. For today's global hit, a musical offering to the earth. It's called Wapapura. The world's Jerry Hatton explains from southern Spain. Wapapura is a lot of things. It's a globe-trotting, solar-powered recording studio. It's a record label, but mostly it's a sort of enviro-musical philosophy. Which is for the bands to actually have an experience within a natural space when they are going through the recording experience. Rafa Cochera is Wapapura. It's his project, his obsession. On a recent summer morning, he's driving from the southern city of Granada up into Spain's rugged Alpujarra Mountains, there, he'll be recording Wapapura's third CD. For a Wapapura recording to take place, you need three elements. You have music, you have space, and you have earth. The music, of course, are the musicians that we're going to record. Today, that's a group of young European virtuosos whose band is called Merope. The space is the environment in which it's going to take place. That would be in the forests of one of Spain's most remote sierras. And then the earth element is the environmental nonprofit that is linked with the recording that will benefit from a part of the proceeds from the download or the purchasing of the CDs when the CDs are actually released. Got it? Musicians play in nature. Cochera records them. Proceeds from the recordings go to a nonprofit group that helps the environment. Finding the right location and recruiting the talent, that can take some searching. Cochera literally scours the earth for artists like this guy. This is Romain Wheeler performing on Wapapura's second open-air CD. Wheeler is a legendary recluse who lives with his concert piano on the edge of a 5,000-foot cliff along Mexico's remote Copper Canyon. Cochera went to his house and lured him to Spain. When I finally got out there, I just wanted to meet him. I had really no intention of knowing what he was going to go with it, but one night he was telling me that he was inspired to become a musician because he saw Andres Segovia play the guitar in San Juan, Puerto Rico when he was nine years old, Recuerdos de la Alhambra. And when he told me that, I said, you know, this is way too much of a coincidence that I live looking at the Alhambra every single day. I said, wouldn't it be really great to one day get you to Granada to perform Recuerdos de la Alhambra facing the Alhambra? Cochera says he's motivated by a perpetual search for that perfect moment when the two things he loves most, the outdoors and music, come together. It's a moment where I'm sitting back and the musicians are playing and the sound guy, Ivan, is doing his work and all the microphones in place and everybody's in their place. And it's just when everyone's in that instant and everyone gets it. Everyone recognizes it when it happens. And I think that's really what most people are looking for when they do things that they're passionate about is and, and people that are rock climbing people that are out 
playing an instrument on a stage. It's that instant when you're just right there. You're in the present moment, and it just clicks. It all clicks, and it's so temporary, and we all know. But then it becomes, it becomes like an addiction. Once it's gone, you have to keep fighting to get it back again. Wapapura's next venture will be into the jungles of Colombia. But right now, Cochera's focus is on his current project in the Alpujarra Mountains. Cochera arrives at an old Spanish farmhouse, greets the musicians in Mirope. There's a Frenchman who plays Indian flute, a Lithuanian on the conkles, a cousin of the zither, plus a flamenco percussionist, a guitar player, and a stand-up bass player. They rehearse outside the farmhouse as a slight breeze blows and birds sing. As Mirope plays, it seems everyone's in harmony with the natural surroundings. But then something happens that Cochera has been dreading. We're going to use headphones the whole time. Yeah, and the amp is going to be with no sound. So he's going to process everything, and then from the amp, he's going to give a, a line to him. So it's going to kind of like... Everybody outside, we're not going to hear anything. Turns out the musicians on this Wapapura project want studio-quality recordings. That is, a bit less nature and more technology and processing, maybe even isolating each instrument. Problem is, that's not Wapapura. Cochera's a romantic. His vision of outdoor recording calls for minimal technology. He says the idea came to him years ago on the slopes of a volcano in Ecuador. I wouldn't want to call it a vision, now in hindsight. I was watching one of the most amazing sunsets of my life, but I was listening to Jimi Hendrix, my headphones, and I was saying, you know, it'd be really cool right now to be able to see Jimi Hendrix play music here. Like, why do I have to listen to it in my headphones? Musicians in Mirope needed some convincing, though, but in the end they agreed to record some tracks Cochera's way, unplugged as it were. They're small moments, like this one at night in a field of chirping crickets. Later, driving back down the mountain, Cochera says that's what makes it all worth the effort, what keeps his obsession alive. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, there's part of me that always wants to be, like, I dream of myself being out kayaking in Alaska or, you know, or, or, or climbing some mountains in Latin America. But, but like I said, when I'm out there now, I'm, I, I, I get to these places and I start analyzing the acoustics of the environment and I try to, and I start organizing an event in that place. It's just, it's something at this point that I can't get away from. Proceeds from this latest Wapapura CD will help fund a tree planting project in Panama. It's due out sometime this fall. For The World, I'm Jerry Haddon, Las Alpujarras, south of Granada, Spain.
You can see a slideshow of Merope playing in an open field in southern Spain. Just go to theworld.org. The world's Boston team includes Stephen Snyder and Mary Lou Ward. Rob Hugh Jones, Ian Rosser, and Rahul Joglicker are in London. The world's engineers are Louis Cronin, Robin Moore, Tina Toby, and Mike Wilkins. Our online team is led by Stephen Davey with Michael Rass, Manya Gupta, and Tori Starr. Check out all they do online. Again, it's theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins. Hope you enjoy the rest of this Labor Day. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. The Carnegie Corporation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by the Annenberg Foundation, the Freeman Foundation, and by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. MacFound.org. PRI Public Radio International.